So our reading this evening comes from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll do verses 13 to 16. And this is Paul writing to the uh, Christians in the church in Thessaloniki. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Great. Well, as um, we begin, I've got a little question for you. Um, One just to think about in perhaps twos or threes around you. Um, What does opposition or persecution look like for you? Okay? We're looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a church which was under siege. It was being opposed. It was being persecuted. What does it look like for you? I find that a really tricky question, so there's no easy answer. But just turn to somebody next to you and have a, have a chat. What does persecution look like for you? And James, if you could just tee up the film for the next bit, that would be great. Thank you. It's a tricky question, isn't it? Some of you might be able to pinpoint something that you say, yeah, I can see the opposition there. I can see persecution there. Others might be floundering a little bit. Um, I don't know whether you saw, but quite recently the BBC showed um, a comedy sketch done by Tracy Ullman. Did anyone see that? A few there at the back. Okay, you're going to enjoy this, I think. I want you to just... This is, this is national TV... And this is a reflection of how somebody is now uh, using comedy uh, as a reflection on our society and what it says about us as Christians. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight from somebody who's lived in the States and come back to the UK. And it's her reflections, really, on UK culture. So let's have a look. While my time in America isn't directly relevant, I think it gives me an extra layer of experience to draw on. Absolutely, that's very impressive. I hope I'm not blowing my own trumpet too much here. If I had a trumpet this good, I'd be blowing it non-stop. Look, I think we're done here, so... I mean, obviously, I can't say anything official right now, but you should expect a phone call. Thank you. I just find it so difficult to boast on my CV. It's just that, as a Christian, I... Oh. What? <laughs> You're a... Christian. Yeah, okay. Uh, Is that a... No, not at all. You don't seem to mention it anywhere here. Well, why would I? No, fair point. I'm not planning to run your polymer factory along biblical lines. Oh, no. Could you just give me a second, please? (laughs) Denise, may I borrow you for a second? I'm just interviewing Patricia Hughes here. Oh, Patricia. How 
wonderful to meet you. Do you know, we're all so excited that you've applied for this role. It's really very flattering when somebody of your camp. There's a problem with me being a Christian, isn't there? Absolutely not, legally speaking. But you both seem uncomfortable for some reason. Uh, do you think that it makes me untrustworthy? No. Incompetent? Mm -mm. A bit weird? Yes. Well, in that case, I'll just withdraw my application. Oh, now, it's funny, isn't it? It's been perfectly normal to be a Christian in this country for the last 1,500 years or so. But now, well... Really sorry about this. It's fine. I forgive you. <laughs> Lucky escape. Yeah, what a nutter. Fascinating, isn't it? I don't know what your experience of, of opposition or persecution is uh, or has been, but I think one of our reactions whenever we come across opposition, and maybe you've experienced something like that, I don't know, but whenever we come across opposition, one of our reactions is, how does this fit in? How does this fit in? What's life about when there's persecution, when there's opposition? It's a great question, isn't it? What is life about? I think if you were um, your average punter here in this part of Oxford, my guess is that you'd see life something like this. You're born, you grow up in a moderately dysfunctional family, you're well-educated, you go to university, you work, you get married, and you buy a house. You then buy a bigger house, you raise a family, you buy an even bigger house, you retire, you then get rid of your even bigger house to buy a house which is still bigger than your children can now afford to live in, but which you call downsizing. You're then looked after in a retirement home, you die. But what purpose does life have? The Christian gospel is one that says human life has both a purpose and an end, a goal. There's a purpose to life. Life isn't meaningless. There's a future for us in eternity. That's the Christian gospel. That future is that there will be a day when the kingdom of God and the rule of God is present completely. It's a radical belief, it's a radical statement in our culture today. And it's a story, a statement which is informed by God's word. God's word which shapes our Christian perspective more than the sounds that come from our culture of today. And God's word was uh, the radical basis on which the Thessalonian church had come to know Christ and had been changed. How they'd turned from idols to serve God. How they have now have a hope for eternity. A hope made possible in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, life and history was working its way to some kind of goal, some purpose for this Thessalonian church. And that's expressed in chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1, as the coming wrath. Not because Paul and his friends wanted to scare everyone. That wasn't their purpose. But because the coming wrath is a reality. The good news of the gospel, the good news of Christ... Is that, Jesus, is that Jesus, raised from the dead, rescues you and I. He rescues his people from the coming wrath. As his kingdom comes, there's a place in eternity 
for his people. There's life, there's freedom, there's rescue, there's redemption. That's the big picture of God's word, which is here in the Bible. This world has a beginning, we learn, and it's going to have an end. When Jesus returns for his people and there'll be a new creation. It's going to be a day of rejoicing for many as the sons of God and the daughters of God are revealed. But it's a day of judgment too as those that serve other kings, other idols, other gods are brought face to face with the living God. The expression of God's kingdom in this day and this age is you and I. It's the church. We're a sign, a symbol that Jesus is present. And to this little church in the city of Thessalonica, a handful of believers, Paul is writing to reassure them, to encourage them. Because as people of the risen Christ, as followers of Jesus, they're in a unique position. They're chosen, they're loved by God. And the gospel, the good news that they've experienced, rings out across the world. The truth of the gospel they've received is the subject of chapter 1, which we've looked at. They need encouraging because they've come to know Christ. But those that told them about it have been chased out of the city. And so now people are questioning not only whether the gospel they responded to was legitimate, but also whether the people that spoke it were kosher or whether they were out for themselves. That's why, do you remember last week, Paul was defending himself as a leader. And now that persecution and opposition had come, well, of course, the questions mount up, don't they? Is it all worthwhile? Is it really true? Did God really say those things to me? I hope you see why this passage is so crucial for us. Perhaps you had a wonderful experience of God over the summer. You were riding high and you're now questioning whether that experience was really valid. Paul's wanting this little church to keep going in the face of opposition, to persevere. And I think he's saying the same to us today. Keep going. Persevere. In order to do that, we need to lift our eyes. We need to ask ourselves whether we buy into this gospel message that God so loved the world, which he created, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Do we believe that? Who do we listen to? Our culture? Our society? Our Facebook feed? Or do we listen to the word of God? Do we believe that God is coming back to make all things new? Have you read the final pages of your Bible? Do you know the end of the story? Do we believe that this world and our life has a goal, a purpose, an end? Because if we do, it's going to radically shape how we live and what it is to follow Christ. As we exist as a signpost, a present reality also of God's kingdom. Paul is writing to this church to say, keep going. Just because you're questioning, just because other people are saying negative things, just because there's opposition, that doesn't mean that you're not on the right track. In fact, Paul says it points to you being on the right track. You received a genuine gospel from a genuine Christian. 
and now you're suffering for it. Isn't that the way of Christ? Isn't that who you're following? Let's have a look at these verses. Verse 13, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. Paul thanks God constantly in his prayers that some of those they preached the gospel to have embraced the message. They welcomed God's word. Our version says, um, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That, that word is so much more than accepted. It's to welcome it. We're bombarded with loads of different messages about life, aren't we? We're constantly shaped by the messages of our culture. What's the antidote? I think these early Christians would have said, well, it's the word of God. I wonder how you treat God's word. Sometimes when the Bible is read here, uh, we end that saying, this is the word of the Lord. And I have to confess that there are many times when I mumble back into my Bible as I'm sitting down and being more worried about what else is going on. Thanks be to God. But do I really mean it? Am I really saying thanks be to God for this word? Are you really grateful to God for this word because it's alive and active and produces not dead worshippers but active Christian witnesses? who point to God's kingdom. Some in Thessalonica welcomed the word. They didn't just accept it, they welcomed it. The good news about Jesus, who was raised from the dead and who rescues us from the coming coming wrath. It was God's gospel, not a human made-up message. And it received a warm welcome. So what was that message? Well, it's the same message that we preach today. That Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he's ascended to heaven. That he's coming back for his people. That God made this cosmos and each of us. And he longs for us to be in relationship with him. That he's making all things new. That there will be a day when we, we, we are to give an account to God. And the only safe place to stand on that day will be to stand in Christ who says because of what he's done on the cross I have paid for him I've paid for her they're mine they're mine life is theirs they're forgiven how do you receive this gospel message for the Thessalonians it's there in uh, chapter 1 verse 9 They turned from idols, from the things that have become gods, the things that we put front and center in our lives. They've turned from idols to serve the true and living God. They've identified with God's people by signing up, by changing direction, by serving a new king. You see, the authentic gospel brought by authentic messengers of God produces authentic Christians. So we should be thankful when we see this happening, just as Paul was. He gives, thank, he gives thanks to God continually because of this. How would this transform our, our conversations over coffee or in the pub afterwards? If we were to ask each other, 
how we received and how we embraced God's word for what it truly is. Perhaps how we first received it. Perhaps how we're receiving it day in, uh, day out. And if you're in the position where you haven't yet accepted the word of God, well, just to have those conversations would give you great opportunity to explore things further, wouldn't it? You see, Paul gives thanks to God for the word which is welcomed by the believers. Secondly, it's a word in action. It wasn't just a static thing. It was a word in action. Do you see it at the end of that verse? Verse 13, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. It's a word in action, it's at work in us who believe. You see, this book contains the words of life. The word of God will stand forever, it's a light for our path. It's pure and perfect. It revives the soul. It points us to Jesus. It reveals God. You know, in this country, the Bible used to be respected as the book that set moral and legal standards for for our society. If you go back 60 years to Queen Elizabeth II's coronation oath, she uh, the Bible is called the most valuable thing that this world affords. The most valuable thing that this world affords is in your hands right now. And she's told, the queen is told, here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. She's holding at this time a royal scepter. And in it there's a diamond which has got an estimated value of 400 million pounds. And she's given a Bible and she's told that it's the most valuable thing that this world affords. How do we view God's word? Is it the most valuable thing that this world affords in my life? You know, for this Thessalonian church, they knew that it wasn't a dull word or a word that lacked power. It was welcomed as the word of God which is at work in you who believe. It constantly amazes me how God's word has power and is effective. When I first came to faith, there was a single verse that did it for me. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That grasped me. That made me realize that it was all about Jesus and what he had done. And not so much about what I could do for him. Since then I've been amazed by the the way that my morning Bible readings has spoken into the things of the day. Given me a challenge as my temper has flared up. Given me comfort as I've cried with someone in their pain. Given me a vocabulary to speak of God and to God. Given me insight in difficult times. Encouraged me, rebuked me, taught me. You see, when God's word is spoken, it is at work. So your quiet time is not something to be endured. The preach, hopefully, the sermon is not something to be endured, I hope. It's an opportunity for God's word to be creatively powerful in us. 
This word we're told is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. We need to realize that when God's word is spoken, it is at work in us who welcome it. And so we need to expect God to be moving in us, working in us, changing us, transforming us, even in our humble quiet time. I hope you experience this. If not, I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to see how you can get into God's words. Through the words of this book, God will change you. He'll change me by his spirit. You might want to come on the Bible overview course that we're starting in a little bit to help you put things into perspective. How does it all fit together? But as you read this book, he'll give you knowledge and wisdom. He'll guide your steps. He'll shape your path until you're welcomed by Jesus into eternity. He's a speaking God. He speaks through words. God spoke through the living word, Jesus Christ, through his spirit. And he speaks today as he reveals himself. One one great preacher once said, the Bible is God preaching. The Bible is God preaching. I like that. So what is what work is the is the word doing then when we when we hear it, when we welcome it? Well remember the parable of the sower. The farmer sowed the seeds on different soils. Some fell on the path, some on rocky ground, some uh, threw down shoots and grew rapidly only for the weeds to choke it. Some produced a great crop. One of the points of this story is that the word, the seed, is at work. The farmer tends the soil. He sows, he harvests, but he also sleeps. He presumably also farms other fields. He has to wait for the seed to grow. And so through the seasons, through the rain and the sunshine, he trusts that the seed is growing and that the word is at work. So where's the word at work then here for this Thessalonian church? Well, we see that the word was at work in their conversion. Chapter 1, verse 5. The word came with power the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. The gospel word was powerfully at work through the Holy Spirit as they turned from idols to God. Secondly, this word was in action not just in their conversion but also in producing real Christian character in them. Back in chapter 1, we saw their work produced by faith. Their labour prompted by love, their steadfastness or their endurance is inspired by hope in Christ. Faith, hope and love had all begun to grow in them. They were putting faith into action. Not just a human word but a divine word with the power to transform and to change. And if you follow through into the rest of this book, you'll see how this transformative power of God God at work in their lives was manifesting itself. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. You see, God himself had taught them to love one another and they were already doing it. 
They weren't perfect, but they were on the right track. And they're being encouraged to do it more and more. I wonder how you see the word of God at work in you. Not only turning you from idols to God, but growing us in character and godliness too. So is the word amongst us? Changing us, making us more loving, more faithful, more hopeful? Well, yes, I think it is. I've seen it this week as I've sat with people going through difficult times. When it seems as though God is absent. When we ask through the tears, where's God in all of this? I've sat with someone who this week has said, I don't understand it. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. But my hope and trust is in God. Yes, the words at work. And when we see it happening, we're not just to tell others, but we're to give thanks to God. That's what Paul does. So the word is welcomed. The word is active, but it's also rejected. Did you see that at the end of that passage? This isn't a game. It's for real. And verse 14 shows another result of the word in action. And that result is persecution and opposition. It can seem a million miles away from us, can't it? But I hope that video at the start helps you see that it's not so far away. Paul and Jesus before him has been persecuted for accepting God's word as God's word. And now this little Thessalonian church are experiencing the same. They're persecuted by their own countrymen, the Gentiles. And so their opposition is just like the persecution that was seen in Judea in the persecution by Jews. I hope you see Paul's point here. You Thessalonians, he's saying, you Thessalonians, you're genuine Christians just like the Judean Christians. And just like them, you're suffering persecution. They were persecuted by the Jews. You're persecuted by the Gentiles. Whenever you become a Christian, whenever God's word is at work, you inevitably face opposition. And what does it look like? Well, verse 15 and 16, the Jews killed God's messengers. They drove them out, which was just what had happened in Thessalonica to Paul. And it was displeasing to God and hostile to all humanity. Verse 15. Why? Well, because this action was preventing the Gentiles from being saved. They were deliberately frustrating the spread of the gospel. Do you see why this is important? Let's just go back a minute to that big picture of God's purpose for his creation. If life has no purpose, then the hostility to the gospel makes no difference. Life is meaningless. But if we welcome God's word, then we see that life isn't meaningless. We have a purpose. We're a symbol and a sign of the kingdom that's being established under Jesus. A people and a world under the rule of God. So anyone that deliberately frustrates the spread of this gospel is hostile to all humanity. And so they bring God's wrath upon themselves. Now you and I may not see much open persecution in this part of the world. 
But what we do see is a desire to prevent or to hinder the spread of the message of God's gospel. You see, the reality is that believers have always been subject to persecution in one form or another. We should expect it. And Paul is saying, when that comes, don't falter, don't give up, keep going. This isn't biblical hate speech against the Jews. Paul doesn't teach or practice hate. You just need to look at the book of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, to see how much he loves the Jewish people. How much his heart's desire is that they should, should be saved. And if he doesn't practice hate, he isn't saying go and inflict God's wrath on these people either. Christians are in no position to do that. We're taught to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. So verse 16 isn't hate, but a sober warning that God is implacably opposed to all who stand in the way of his great love for humanity, being known and experienced. Now this accusation of hate speech might lead us to be distracted, but Paul is encouraging these Thessalonian Christians that they are true believers. They've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and his message is at work in them. Paul isn't a con man, he's a real Christian servant with a real word of God. The message is truth. The vehement opposition is just proof of the authenticity of the word. So if you're wondering whether your faith is worth pursuing, thank God that you embrace the gospel. Trust him and see that his word is at work in you. You might be being persecuted. You might see oppression. You may question whether you can withstand pressure in, the, in your school or in your workplace. Don't be surprised. Don't be unsettled. Be strong and have confidence. Persecution is and always has been part of the package of true belief. It's the way of Christ. So when the gospel is preached, when the word of God is near two things happen. Firstly, there's a warm welcome as people turn from idols to serve the true and living God and as godly character is formed in us. Secondly, there's a cold shoulder as suffering and persecution comes. But Paul's message to you and I is keep going. Keep going. There's a story and we know how it ends. Just look at the final page of the Bible. And we'll see that Jesus reigns, Jesus lives, Jesus wins. And he wants you and I, and he wants this world to be with him for eternity. Let's pray.